You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd open to Luke 10. Luke 10, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 37, or the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is uh, the last Sunday in our stories sermon series that we've been in for a few months. Um, I pray this series has been challenging to you. It's been challenging to me as I've prepared each week. Uh, I pray maybe in some of the more uh, common stories that we're familiar with out of the Bible, perhaps uh, we've learned a little extra or learned a little something maybe that we didn't know. And uh, this will be the last one in that section. We'll have Lord's Supper next week. And then in August, we're going to take the month of August and look at the topic of prayer. I've decided that every year, one month out of the year, we're going to do a sermon series on prayer because it's just that important. Um, So we'll be doing that in August. I'll let you know a little bit more about that next week. But today we're going to deal with our last story, the story of the Good Samaritan. Some of you who uh, have been on Sunday nights recently, you might be thinking, we just did this story a few weeks ago, and we did as we're walking through the book of Luke. Um, But I intentionally held some things back that night uh, because I knew I was going to be preaching this on Sunday morning. So you're not going to just get the same thing you got a few weeks ago on Sunday nights. Uh, we'll, we'll have some different things today. When we talk about parables, one of the things that I want to help us to understand is how we understand parables. Jesus taught in, spoke in parables quite a bit in the Gospels. And um, I've, I've got a slide that's going to pop up for you. Uh, just some hints, just some helpful things when we talk about learning and understanding parables. Uh, what is a parable, the actual word for parable means to cast aside, uh, but it doesn't mean, when we think about the phrase cast aside, we probably think about casting something aside because we're not going to use it anymore. Uh, this understanding of casting aside is actually casting it in parallel or alongside. So what Jesus would do is he would take real life situations and conditions and he would cast a parable alongside that real life situation or condition and then teach from it. So that's what the word parable means. And so we ask ourselves, what's the purpose of the parable? Sometimes the purpose is to enlighten or to educate, as is the case today. Other times, Jesus taught in parables not to enlighten or to educate, but actually to temporarily hide the truth from persons. In Matthew chapter 10, he tells the parable of the sower, and the disciples come to him and say, why do you teach in parables? And Jesus' long, drawn-out response is basically summed up in this way, this truth is not for everybody to know right now. That does not mean that truth is still hidden today, but then in those moments, Jesus was teaching solely to the disciples. So sometimes he tells them to enlighten or educate, other times he told them to hide the truth. What prompts the parable? What, what makes Jesus go to teaching a parable in this way? And this day, today what we'll talk about is there's a, a question, actually two questions, that prompt this parable. And then who are the main characters in the parable? That often tells us a lot about what Jesus' intent is and what he's trying to get across that helps us go to the main point or the last question, which is what is the main point or what is the outcome of the parable? What are you and I supposed to walk away from when Jesus teaches in parables, what are we supposed to take home with? Um, I had a friend in, in Arizona who, when he would teach youth, he would call them toothbrush questions. 
And he would say, I want you to come home with something that while you're brushing your teeth tonight, your mind is thinking about what did I learn today? And so what do we come home with? What's the point or the purpose of the parable? And so those are just some helpful hints to uh, work through parables as you encounter them in the Gospels. So if you want to follow along with me, we're going to read the entire thing, and then we're going to come back and kind of research it bit by bit. But Luke 10, beginning verse 25, all the way through verse 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, when he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and said, give to, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So the first thing I want us to see is that there's a question regarding eternal life that begins us into this passage. That a lawyer, who when we think lawyer, we typically think someone who's arguing in a court of law. In this Jewish tradition, a lawyer was a very different person. It was a person who was responsible for understanding and interpreting the law that God had given. So he was almost like a teacher, almost like a preacher. And so this lawyer answers a question to begin with, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the scripture makes it very clear what his intent is. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Meaning he's hoping to catch Jesus in something that Jesus shouldn't say. There's two places in scripture this particular question is asked. Here, uh, and then later in Luke 18, and likewise in Mark 10, the rich young ruler asks the same question. What must I do? What must I, how must I live to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus makes this statement to the lawyer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And his response is, you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. You would love your neighbor as yourself. It's very interesting to me because the lawyer answers in this way. In Matthew 22 and in Mark 12, another lawyer and another scribe, which lawyer and scribe are very synonymous with one another. But in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, Matthew and Mark record an instance where a lawyer or a scribe comes to Jesus and says, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
What's interesting to me, and this is just a little side diversion here, but what's interesting to me is that chronologically, the Matthew and Mark accounts where the scribe or the lawyer asked Jesus that, chronologically are after this story of the Good Samaritan. And so my mind wonders if after the lawyer or the scribe has answered in this way to Jesus, if there's not talk among them, and at a later date, another lawyer or scribe says, well, let's ask Jesus and see if he answers the same way. That may or may not be the case, but it seems to be the case to me. But nonetheless, Jesus does to this lawyer what good teachers do. When the lawyer says, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus responds with a question of his own. How do you read the law? What do you think? It's, it's the, the version or the, the understanding of you tell me. And this is good practice by good teachers. Because a teacher's point should be to uh, transfer or to have the, the learner or the one who's receiving the knowledge to be able to understand it and apply it more so than just a transfer of knowledge from one person to another. If you were to ask me today after the service, what, what does the Bible say a Christian should act like? Or how, how does the Bible say a Christian should live? Well, then I would likely have two responses to you. One... If I knew that you were not a believer in Christ, or if I knew that perhaps you were a young believer who really had not read a lot of your Bible, I would probably sit down with you and walk you through various passages, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4 and 6, um, Galatians, uh, Galatians 4, 5 and 6, Philippians 2. I would walk you through these passages that speak to what a Christian's life should look like. But if you were a person who I knew was a long-term believer and a person who claimed, I know the Bible well, and you said, how should a Christian act? My, my response to you would probably be this. Well, how do you think a Christian should act? What do you think the Bible says in regards to how a Christian should live? Because your ability or your inability to answer that would tell me a lot about what you really think about the Bible. Jesus here is not dealing with an unbeliever. He's dealing with a lawyer, one who is responsible for understanding and interpreting and applying the law of God to people. And so he does not give him an option of Jesus giving him the answer. He asks him, well, what do you think? What do you think you have to do to inherit eternal life? And so he gives him that answer, and then Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Should have been the end of the story, right? You ask a question, Jesus prompts you for an answer, you give the right answer, should have been it. But look at verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What does it mean to justify himself? Well, we seek to justify ourselves for our actions or sometimes our inactions by essentially making excuses. You ask your child to clean up their room. And later that day, you say, did you clean up your room? Well, so I did, but I didn't know if clean meant like my closet too or behind the door or underneath the bed or like did you want me to actually hang my clothes up or the child justifies his or her action or inaction by saying, well, I didn't really know what you meant, Right? Or maybe you're at work, your boss comes by, did you get that report done, did you get that project done? Well, I did, but you know, I didn't really know how you wanted it to look, so I've kind of got it over here, but it's not really in publishable form, because I was kind of waiting, and 
Right? Like we justify our actions or our inactions by saying, well, I wasn't really clear on this. And really, when we do that, what we're looking for is a loophole. What we're looking for is to, in our words, to have that person in authority, whether it's a parent, a boss, or whatever else, to say to us, oh, well, it's okay that you did that or didn't do that. We're looking for a way out. That's what the lawyer is looking for here. Well, okay, Jesus, then tell me, who's my neighbor? The question could also have been posed to Jesus this way. Um, Tell me who I have to love. If you could just give me a nice, neat list, Jesus, of the people I have to love and the ones I don't have to, that would make my life a lot easier. This is what we do. It's what we do with Scripture. It's what we do in our own lives. Let's not be too hard on the lawyer. Let me just just put this out as an example today, a different piece of Scripture, but just as an example. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Paul writes to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 2, he writes to Titus. These are known as pastoral letters, which means that even though they're included in the Scriptures for all to read, they were really letters that Paul wrote to men who were pastoring. And so Paul's writing to them to instruct them not only in how they're to live, but that they are then to instruct the churches they're leading how those persons should live. And Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions... That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, how differently would Timothy have read if it, Paul wrote this and then there was an interjection? But Timothy said to Paul, But do I have to pray for them if they're pagan? Do I have to pray for them if they're a Roman leader? Do I have to pray for them if you fill in the blank? How different would Timothy have looked if Timothy had said, desiring to justify myself for not praying for leaders, can I ask you, is it okay if I don't pray for them if they are this? And yet, isn't that what we do? We'll we'll return to 1 Timothy 2 a little bit later. This really becomes the main point of this parable. The Samaritan's actions are commendable. The priest and Levite actions are horrible. But really the main point of this parable is understanding that what Jesus is teaching to this lawyer who's supposed to know the word of God and supposed to live on and act out the word of God, that he does not really do so because he wants to justify himself by saying, can I only apply it to some people? Can I only love a few? And that's the point of the parable. So as he gets, Jesus began to teach us the parable, beginning there in verse 30, in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And it brings us to our second understanding today of good theology, but bad practice. The lawyer has great theology. Understanding the word, understanding the word of God, being able to interpret and apply it, so too then would the priests and the Levites. And yet, look at what they do as Jesus tells the parable. Verse 30, let's look at it again. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, to beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Who were priests and Levites in this day? They were two different but similar groups of people who served the church, served the synagogues, served the temples. They were responsible for understanding and applying God's word to people. They were responsible for offering daily sacrifices as well as sacrifices that were in special times in the calendar year. They ministered in various ways to the people in terms of music and worship and collecting offerings and so on, so on, and so forth. Today's equivalent would be uh, pastors and church staff and leadership like elders and deacons and trustees and, and anybody who your church considers to kind of be in a leadership position is kind of today's equivalent to priests and Levites. And in Jesus' day, the priests and the Levites were expected to have thorough knowledge of God's word. They were expected to have a deep understanding, interpretation, and application of God's word and its meaning. Today, quite often, in the new, new world equivalent to that, it's the same expectation, isn't it? If you have someone who you think is a leader in your church in some capacity, way, shape, or form, you expect them to have a good understanding of the Word of God. I want to say this, though, as a caveat. There is a distinct difference between then and now. The difference between then and now is in Jesus' day, they weren't all walking around carrying scrolls of the Torah under their arms. They didn't have 3.5 scrolls in their homes like the average American does Bibles. And so in their day, they kind of needed the priest and the Levite to have this knowledge and then dispense this knowledge. You don't need that today. And you might be saying, you're preaching yourself out of a job. I would love to. I would love to preach myself out of a job of being the main instructor of the Word of God and instead having you come to me and saying, I read the Word of God this week and this is what God showed me and this is fascinating, preacher. Can I share this with somebody else? Absolutely. I will have a seat right now. Because you have the written word of God in your hands, in your homes. You have the Holy Spirit of truth that Jesus said would illuminate all things in the believer's lives. You have, if you so wish, the internet. And yes, the internet's used for bad things. But listen, the internet's used for a lot of great things too. And if you're struggling with the passage and you want to find out what that passage means or what that particular word looks like in the Greek language or the Hebrew language so you can better understand how it's translated to English, you can do that. Jesus' day, they had to have the priests and the Levites. You don't have to have that today. But notice how Jesus frames this situation. He talks about this man that's gone down. He says in verse 31, now by chance. The phrase that's very equivalent to our understanding of coincidence. There just so happens to be a priest walking by. He he essentially says the same thing in verse 32. So likewise, meaning in the same manner, a Levite comes by. This would have a hearing that there was a priest that came by first, and then even though he did the wrong thing, now a Levite would have had Jesus' listeners going, oh, there's hope for this man. But both of them turn away. There's all kinds of reasons given as to why they don't help. Some historians believe that there are as many as ten to 12,000 priests and Levites who lived outside of Jerusalem in that day. 
So in this parable, in this story Jesus is telling, it's very likely that the priest and the Levite were on their way home out of Jerusalem, out of a hard day's work in the temple and the synagogue, and they just wanted to get home. They didn't want to be bothered. Some point to Old Testament regulations about touching a dead body and being ceremonially unclean, which uh, would have caused them to have had to go through a cleansing process that would have taken about a week and would have impacted their work. And we say, well, he's not dead. Yeah, but look how Jesus describes him in verse 30, half dead. If you look at something from a distance that's half dead, you pretty much think it's fully dead. My, my cat brings stuff home all the time. And I see it in the driveway or I see it on the sidewalk or I see it somewhere else. And, and I look at it from a distance and I go, oh, that thing is dead. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. But looking at it from a distance, I consider it to be fully dead. They, looking at this man from a distance, probably consider him to be fully dead. Regardless of the reason... Not only do they not refuse or not help the man, they refuse to help him, they actually move to the other side of the road. Sort of an out of sight, out of mind mentality, isn't it? Now, there are some who say that the priest Levite really had no responsibility for helping this man, but understand the implication of the story is that the man was a Jewish man. When we get to the Samaritan's actions in a moment, it would not be shocking for the Samaritan to help someone who was not Jewish. But it's entirely unbelievable for Jesus' audience to think that this Samaritan, this hated person of their culture, would help a Jew. Why is that important? Because actually in the law, what would have been required of not only the priest and the Levite, but any Jewish person would have been required to help a fellow Jew in need. So there was responsibility. There was legal responsibility. There was an understanding of them to help. And they did not. Think back to what I said a few moments ago, what the equivalent of priests and Levites are today. Imagine WKYT runs a story out of Lexington next week that says, well, a man was in a wreck on Georgetown Road, and uh, Pastor Steve Rose of Providence Church drove by and witnessed, and witnessed him laying half out of his car and bleeding, and, but went on and went around the wreck because he had somewhere to be that afternoon. Or the, the deacon body from Providence Baptist Church, they were going out on a, on a lunch date together to talk about the efforts of the church. And, and they passed by the same wreck, but they did the same thing. Or the staff members, or, or whoever you would deem important within your church. Imagine if they ran that story. How shocked would you be? How shocked do you think a culture would be? That here these people who are responsible for leading God's people and leading God's word would walk or would drive by and leave this person to do nothing. Hopefully you would be shocked. But that actually takes us to the third and final point today is that what we then have in the parable is the shocking Samaritan. Yeah, I think there's two levels of shock in this story. One is the shock that the priest and the Levite do nothing. But the second level of shock is that the Samaritan does something. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan. A statement of contrast. But a Samaritan. Not a Levite. Not a priest. Not another Jewish person. But a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
Now, there's a couple of things here. When it says he came to where he was, that does not merely mean that he just came to the general vicinity. That means that he got close. Not just that he happened upon the scene. It's a phrase that means that he saw the individual and he came close and got to him. Remember, when you're looking from a distance, things that are half dead look fully dead. Or when you're looking up close, things that are half dead look half alive. I go to that animal in the driveway or on the sidewalk or whatever it is, wherever it is that Smalls has brought him home. And from here it looks dead, but I get up next to it and I see uh, a little a little breath or a movement or a twitch of a leg, and I know that thing's still got life in it. Samaritan got close when the priest and the Levite didn't. This is the initial difference between the three of them. Two of them cross the road, don't even get close enough to see if he's still in need. The Samaritan does not do that. He gets close. We cannot minister to people, church. We cannot minister to people who we are not willing to draw near to. We cannot minister to people in God's kingdom to people who we are not willing to get close to. And sometimes the scene is bad. A man half beaten, robbed, left for dead, or I should say fully beaten, robbed, left for dead, was a bad scene. We cannot minister to people who we are not willing to draw close to. If we are not willing to draw close to others, even in bad, messy scenes and situations, we will not see the kingdom of God fulfilled in our presence. He draws close, and then it says he had compassion on the man. He had compassion. Compassion is a big marker of Jesus, and therefore should be a big marker of those who say they follow Jesus. I'm going to just read a, a handful, I think four verses dealing with Jesus and compassion. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. He didn't see the crowd and cast judgment on them. He didn't see the crowd and say, why are they acting the way they're acting? He didn't see the crowd and say, oh, I can't believe they got themselves in this own position. He saw the crowd and had compassion because he recognized they had no leadership. They were a sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He met their physical need. Luke 7, 13, he passes by this funeral procession. It's a widow whose son has died and the implication is it's our only son going to leave her very vulnerable in that society. And it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. And then he raised him from the dead. Compassion. The, the compassion that the Samaritan shows is the compassion that the Bible talks about Jesus having. Now let me ask this simple question. Are we truly compassionate followers of Jesus? Am I truly a compassionate follower of Jesus? Or am I more likely to throw judgment to cast my thoughts onto why someone or a group of someones are doing what they're doing or are living the way they're living? Am I compassionate to those who have need? Or do I say things like, well, you know, if they just get a job, 
compassion is a mark of who Jesus is. It has to be a mark of who we are. And the shocking Samaritan, the reason Jesus does this is because it shocked his readers to think the priest and the Levite had no compassion. The people who by very definition was their job to know God's word. He had compassion over them. And of course, the answer there is yes. I shared this um, last Sunday night in our business meeting. Lifeway is a group that is uh, Southern Baptist owned and run. They produce curriculum. They uh, produce camps for kids to go to, retreats for adults to go to, so on and so forth. They also have a research division. So they're constantly doing um, polls and research throughout the nation. And last week, they issued this finding that 31% of Americans say they have quite a lot or a great deal of confidence in the church or organized religion. 31%. That means the remaining 69% either have less than a lot or not a lot of confidence or going all the way through the findings, no confidence in the church or organized religion. Now, this has been declining since 1975. In 1975, the percentage then was 68% of Americans had a high deal of confidence or great trust in churches. But that number has steadily dropped. It's had a couple of spikes here and there, but it has steadily dropped from 68% in 1975 to 31% now. Why? All kinds of reasons. Scandals. Understanding abuse within churches and denominations and religions. More, more Americans today identify as non-religious than at any other time in history. I think all those things and more are true of that situation. But I, I'd like to offer you one other thing that I think. I, I like to um, study things, particularly historical things, and see correlation, if there is correlation to be found. And so it says in 1975, it was 68%, and it's fallen steadily to now to 31%. You know what happened in the second half of the 1970s? A pastor by the name of Jerry Falwell created what became known as the Moral Majority. And the Moral Majority had two main purposes. One was they didn't want to see Jimmy Carter have a second term as president. So they threw their support behind this guy named Ronald Reagan, touted him as the conservative choice among churches and among evangelical organizations. And then that moral majority latched on to different cultural issues within the day as kind of being their platform. But the second thing that they wanted to do that they weren't so public about then, but now as interviews and books have been read and, and written and read and so on and so forth, it's come out that the second thing that they really wanted to do was this. They wanted to tie the church to political power. That was their goal. They wanted to tie the Church of America to political power, and Ronald Reagan was their first shot fired in that war. And it's setting on that course. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because I say this to you. Whenever anything gets involved in politics, what happens? You begin to make enemies out of people. 
you begin to see people as enemies. Now, all of a sudden, in a political regime, the other side is the enemy, or the people that don't choose sides are the enemy, or even within the political system, the ones that aren't political enough like we are, are the enemy. And to enemies, do we routinely, normally have compassion? No. So there's a correlation, I think, between all of these things, these scandals, the abuse, the rising of those who are non-religious, and this in the 1970s tying the church to politics that mirrors this drop from 1975 to now where 31% of the Americans have a high confidence in the church. Why? Because we put ourselves in bed with the wrong people. I'm not telling you you can't be political. I'm not telling you you can't support somebody. I'm not telling you not to have political discussions. But the church is not the institution of politics. The church is the institution of the kingdom of God. First and foremost and forever. And people have lost confidence. They've lost security, yes, in all institutions in our nation right now. But understand the church is not just another institution. It's the body of Christ. And if we do not have compassion, if we do not live in such a way where God's word means something to us and is displayed through our lives, then I understand why they have very little confidence in who we are. The Samaritan's compassion was displayed in his personal action and generosity. You, we read it there earlier, but if you look again at verses 34 and 35, he, he took the man, he bound him up himself, he took him to an end, he paid for all of his services, so on and so forth. He, he at great personal responsibility and cost did this man, the Samaritan, help the others. And then Jesus asks that question, which of these three do you think Proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. Notice the way Jesus phrases it again. He tells this story and he comes back to the lawyer. The lawyer who said, seeking to justify myself, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this beautiful story and he comes back to him and he says, now who do you think is the neighbor? Who do you think proved to be the most godly person in this moment? Let's go back to 1 Timothy 2. I want to circle back to that for just a moment. If you were to come to me today and say, Pastor, should I pray for our current leaders? Should I pray for our president, our our governor, our mayor, and so on and so forth? Should I be praying for all these people? My answer back to you as a person who understands the Bible, consuming you're the person who understands the Bible, would be, well, what do you think? What do you think? Instead, what have we done, largely? Because I've heard it from videos, from pastors, from pulpits, and I've seen it on social media from people who profess to be Christian. Well, I, I'll pray for them, but I, I'm going to pray their days are few. I'll pray for them, but I'm going to pray they're not in there very long. Some people pray even worse things. But understand what verse 4 of that passage to Timothy said. Paul said to pray for them, Because, verse 4, God wants everyone to be saved and everyone to come to the knowledge of his truth. He didn't say, pray for him that God remove them. Pray for him that God get them out. Well, wait a second. Do I have to pray for the one I didn't vote for? Do I have to pray for the one that's not in my party? What do you think? 
Jesus to the lawyer, who do you think was the neighbor? And he gets the answer right again. Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Listen, folks, the Samaritan's actions are beautiful. They're challenging. They're compassionate. They're powerful. But the intent of this parable is this, is to say to all who say, I follow Jesus, and all who say, I know the scriptures well, is to say to all of us, does your life reflect it? Does your life reflect it? You say you know the word. You say you've grown up with the word. You say to read the word daily. Does your life reflect it? That if Jesus was to stand before us and we were to say, well, Jesus, um, should I really be, be, be generous with my money? Jesus would say, well, you read the word. What do you think? Jesus, should I really love my neighbor, uh, even though my neighbor is a, a bad man, woman to me, and, and they cause me grief? And Jesus would say, well, you read the word. What do you think? Jesus, should I really not take revenge on my enemies, but instead, when I see them hungry, uh, feed them, and when I see them in need, clothe them and give them a water when they drink, because uh, that, that's what we should do? And Jesus said, well, you read Paul in Romans 12. What do you think? parable of the story the point of it is not that the Samaritan was great even though his actions were great in the story the moment the par- the point of the story excuse me I'll get it right in a second the point of the story is if you claim to know Jesus and you claim to read the word of God does your life reflect it do you look more like priest than Levite do you look more like the lawyer who says but do I have to Or do you look more like the Samaritan who went and did? Jesus gave the lawyer two commands. He gives us the same two commands today. What must I do to inherit life, eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then said, go and do that, and you'll inherit eternal life. And then the second one, who was the neighbor? The one who showed him mercy. Go and do that too. I know the word. I know Jesus, then go and do. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.